Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. And I'd like to tell you that we have a new and improved website. It has two new features that we think you'll love. One of them is a vastly improved search engine so that when you type in keywords, you'll get a bunch of episodes really quick. The other is the ability to create a listener account. And in that listener account, you can save episodes for later listening. So you can create a kind of listening list. We think these features are neat and we think you'll enjoy them. Please visit the site today. Hello and welcome to another episode of New Books in History. I'm Stephen Colebrook. Today I'll be speaking with Graham Thompson, author of Herman Melville, Among the Magazines, published by University of Massachusetts Press in 2018. In this book, Thompson uses Melville's magazine work to examine broader questions about embedded authorship, the history of editing, and literary pilfering. In the end, Thompson asks, what did it mean to be a magazine writer in the 1850s? Graham, welcome to the programme. Hi, Stephen. Thank you for, for inviting me on. Uh, so could you just begin by giving a, a sort of overview of your own uh, intellectual background and what brought you to this particular topic? Um, well, I've been writing about Melville uh, on and off, I guess, for the last, well, probably 20 years. And um, I wrote about uh, Melville's very famous short story, Bartleby the Scrivener, first of all. When I first wrote about it 20 years ago, I wasn't really interested in the magazine context. In fact, um, I don't think when I first started writing about it, I even considered it as a magazine story at all. And I think going back to the story, that question of what difference did it make that it was a story published in a magazine um, started to interest me. Um, And eventually, um, maybe about eight to ten years ago, I started to think more generally about Melville and this part of his career when he was writing exclusively for magazines um, and what difference it would make to our understanding of those stories, which critics really hadn't looked at before, if we thought about them, first of all, as, as magazine stories rather than just as stories. So that's the, that's the context of this particular, uh, particular project. I mean, my, my other work really has looked at American literature and culture during the 19th and the 20th century, so I've got quite kind of broad interests, I suppose. Um, and I think it was the combination of a, of a potential literary study to write more about Melville, but also to think about more of that general cultural context, I guess, um, which uh, brings in the kind of interest in magazines. And to put these two things together seemed to me to be a, um, a potentially interesting project. Great. So um, could you just give our listeners a quick overview of Melville's life in the 1850s? 
Yes, so this was a, a period of, I guess, of great up, upheaval and change um, in all sorts of ways for Melville. So as we enter the 1850s, um, he's a relatively young man. Um, he's 31 in 1850. And um, the 1850s is a decade when he becomes a father, uh, when he writes uh, that great uh, novel, um, Moby Dick. Um, when he moves to Pittsfield from New York City, so away from the kind of literary culture of New York and away to uh, Western Massachusetts, so he relocates his his whole life effectively, and that's partly because he becomes slightly um, uh, uh, unhappy with the way that his writing career is developing and uh, his relationships with people in uh, in New York City. Certainly, his kind of literary relationships in New York City. So he so he moves his whole life. Um, uh, at the beginning of the 1850s. And during the decade, um, he obviously kind of uh, suffers, uh, I guess, literary rejection with with Moby Dick and particularly with Pierre. He writes a novel <clears throat> which we know is now lost, The Isle of the Cross. He becomes a magazine writer during the mid-1850s, um, gives that up, goes traveling to Europe and the Middle East um, later on in the 1850s, comes back, um, becomes a... a um, a, a traveling lecturer so he, he goes on the lecture circuit which was kind of popular thing for, for many people to do at the end of the 1850s and then by the end of the the decade he, he he almost gives up writing fiction completely and becomes a poetry writer and really his kind of career his public career as a writer uh, uh fades uh, relatively quickly after that so it's a period of great change in many ways for melville um his thirties are kind of a turning point in in his life. Okay, great. So I just have a kind of a couple of more theoretical questions, uh, particularly regarding your your introduction. So, how does your work uh, engage with the concepts of embedded authorship? So, I guess this is a phrase that I use to try and indicate um, Melville's position in the publishing system and a publishing network. What I was interested in trying to do really was to think about the way that a writer is just kind of one cog in a system, clearly a, a, an important cog in that in that system. But publishing and uh, certainly magazine publishing relied upon a lot of other activities as well, which go you know, right from the beginning of that process, which is the, the paper making, which is something I, I deal with in the book, all the way through to that moment when, you know, whatever it is that's been produced is read by and consumed um, by a reader. So really, it's that kind of um, situatedness, I guess, of a writer in a publishing system. That's what I mean by embedded authorship. And I was interested to think about Melville's um, particular um, location in that in that kind of system. And I, I think the concept itself uh, would allow us to deal with lots of other kinds of contingent possibilities where writers situate themselves so you know it's very different from from writer to writer so some writers are kind of deeply embedded in a in a publishing system uh, others are more shallowly shallowly embedded i think you know melville is, is perhaps one of those writers so he has particular um connections with um with the, with with the paper industry but he's not really part of that kind of publishing network that's going on in new york city in which he really kind of removes himself from Mm-hmm. And you can consider how that might be different for different kinds of writers, you know, for, for Poe or for Hawthorne, for instance, or any writer in 
in in in some ways uh, they, they 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 are situated in a particular kind of a network or system and using the concept like embedded authorship can help us to understand how a particular writer fits into um, whatever a system it is that, uh, that, that they exist mm. so a sort of follow-up question to that is uh how did you balance historical context with the sort of formal literary qualities of melville's work um well, I guess in you know in in in, in, a, in a straightforward way, those two things are never separate. Mm-hmm. Um, but I guess in broader terms, it's more of a kind of micro history, I guess, the book than a than a macro history. I think you know there's been a lot of work on Melville, obviously, and um, lots of very good work that situates him in a kind of broad historical context, uh, and certainly in the American context and a um, a pre Civil War context. I don't try to do that. Um, I'm not particularly interested in those, or certainly not in this project, I'm not particularly interested in those broader kinds of historical readings of Melville's work. What I tried to, wanted to try and do was to, to create a, a kind of micro context, I guess, um, in which we can start to think in more detail about how those broader developments, so um, certainly the marketization of publishing and the print industry in the 19th century, how those, how those broader developments play themselves out at a kind of a, a local level, if you like. Um, and Melville is, so in many, in many ways, he's a case study for, uh, for that kind of work. And again, that connects to the idea of embedded authorship and how that can be very different for, 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 for other authors, but it has a particularly, uh, has a particular kind of resonance for somebody like Melville. So it's thinking about historic, it, uh, historical context in an, in a contingent mm. way, I guess, mm. about how you know people's experiences of history are, are very different and they respond to it in different kinds of ways. And I guess thinking about the magazine context then makes us uh, brings in the kind of formal literary element and to think about how that kind of micro or contingent historical context plays itself out in. Melville's uh, writing, you know, historical contexts have um, literary consequences. Um, I, I think one important thing to consider for Melville is the way that form itself is uh, an historical um, thing. Um, so the, the kinds of uh, literary qualities that I'm interested in Melville are themselves historical. So, you know, he's writing in magazines, um, he's writing particular kinds of pieces uh, which do and don't um, fit in with the kinds of formal literary uh, qualities that magazines are, are, are developing in the eighteen uh, in the eighteen fifties. So I guess it's that it's that kind of micro context, thinking about uh, um, a, a sing, what a single author study can do. And I think the one thing I was conscious of not trying to do was to try to make broad generalizations uh, mm-hmm. from. Uh, specific case study so I didn't it's not a book that's really about that doesn't make claims about the publishing industry in general in the 1850s or about historical context more generally in the 1850s it's really concerned with thinking about what it meant for Melville what it looked like for Melville what it felt like for Melville to be a writer in this particular moment um, and how that comes across in the formal uh, uh, qualities of his uh, of his of his work in these magazine stories 
Great. So your first chapter deals with the interactions between Melville and the paper industry, and your introduction has a, has a fascinating anecdote about this. Um, could you describe that interaction for our listeners? Yes. So when one of the results of Melville moving to Pittsfield um, in the eighteen in the early eighteen fifties was that he moved. <clears throat> I don't think. <clears throat> excuse me. And I don't think this was a conscious decision. It was it was connected with uh, uh, family uh, context. So he ended up moving to Pittsfield in Western Massachusetts uh, to a part of the of America that was one of the major paper making regions of the of the country at that point. So the district in which he lived uh, had many uh, paper mills, and this was um, because of geography. So paper mills needed um, needed water to power them. So they were often built in, in, in more distant locations. So fortuitously, he ends up moving to this uh, part of uh, Massachusetts where paper is made. And as a writer, he obviously needs um, paper to, to, to work on. And clearly, when he's writing Moby Dick, he needs a lot of paper. Um, so, you know, it's, the anecdote I tell at the beginning of the story is about um, one trip that he takes in early 1851 to uh, a local town, Dalton, which is near Pittsfield. Um, he goes there on a sleigh with his family to basically buy paper on which he writes uh, Moby Dick. So he, this is one sense in which he's an embedded author. He's embedded in this um, this paper economy. It's just on his doorstep, if you like. Mm-hmm. Uh, and this is obviously a very different relationship to that industry that somebody would have who lived perhaps you know, in a city who would buy their paper from a stationer or for, uh, rather than actually visiting a paper mill itself. Um, and what you can see, not just in um, uh, this that particular anecdote, but in but in other ways, is how paper comes to inform Melville's kind of imagination. So he, he writes in the letter to Hawthorne at one stage that he has this dream of of sitting in his house and having a paper mill at one end. And effectively, what he describes is the paper being produced by this paper mill and flowing through his window, and he's writing on this continuous reel of paper as it comes off the paper mill. Um, and so it becomes just part of his imagination, I mm. guess. And, and more generally for, for a writer, uh, particularly you know, in the 19th century, paper is incredibly important, uh, where you get it, um, how you source it, um, and how you use it. Um, and people have written before about um, how Melville writes, physically writes on paper and the way that... Um, he has a particular kind of uh, physical relationship with with paper, and I was just interested to explore that a bit further, I guess. And one of the things um, that he does, uh, following up from this trip to the paper mill, you know, he, he writes about it to to the people that he knew in New York. So he famously um, writes on a on a letter to to Everett Doiking that he's visited this paper mill, and he says what a great neighbourhood it is for authors. And what he means is that I think I think what he's trying to say is that. It's not just because there are other lo- authors who live locally, famously Hawthorne, but other writers as well. But what he's really trying to uh, to, to impress on Doikink is the fact that he lives in a part of the world where he can buy his own paper. That's what makes this a great neighbourhood for authors. So, mail- so paper is, is very close to Melville's heart in many ways, maybe very close to his life, very close to his sense of what it is to, to be a writer. And obviously, you know, writing is published eventually on 
paper, in magazines or in books, but it first has to be written on on paper. And I think it was that kind of relationship that Melville had with paper that I wanted to try and explore a little bit in um, in these magazine stories. Mm. So uh, given the, the sort of effect on Melville's imagination that paper had, uh, how does it function in his short stories? Well, I think, first of all, it, it kind of offers a, um, even before it gets into the writing itself, it offers a kind of material support, I guess. Um, it has a presence, it has a physical presence in, in Melville's uh, working life. And I think what he's also aware of um, is that it also has a broader kind of social and economic function. So when he comes to write about it in his magazine stories, most evidently in in Bot with the Scrivener and the Paradise of Bachelors and the Tartarus of Maids, he's conscious of the way that it paper works for other people apart from writers. So in Bartle, we have a lawyer for whom paper is very important. And in, certainly in the second part of the Paradise of Bachelors, we have uh, um, somebody who sells and distributes seeds around the country in paper containers. So he's conscious of its place, not just as something that writers use, but something which other people in America are using um, at the time in which he's writing. So I think he's conscious or, or interested in trying to represent that relationship um, that other people have with with paper as well. So it's a kind of multifunctional um, entity. Um, the other, I think, thing that's important to say when he when it comes to write when it comes to writing is that um, it's 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 a material form in which uh, Melville not only uh, plays out his ideas, um, but also it's something which offers him support. Um, I, I guess what I mean by this is that um, it allows him to reaffirm himself as a as a writer. So there are lots of stories about Melville being an alienated writer in the in the eighteen fifties. So the reception of Moby Dick is is poor. The reception of Pierre is is even worse. Mm-hmm. Um, there is an idea that he somehow becomes alienated by this um, by this rejection in the eighteen fifties. And that he he takes this out certainly in Bartleby the Scrivener we see this sense of alienation played out in a in, in, the, in the in the in the clock. But I I, I'm, I think I try to make the opposite argument in in the book that when he does come to write about it we can read those stories as actually being an affirmation of um, his writing and his in his paper life if you like. So it's somewhere where he's able to express himself. It has a positive sort of role in his life paper becomes a source of pleasure rather than a source of pain mm. I think. and i think those stories that he writes where paper is most evident um tell that story they they, they tell the stories um of people um who are writing for for um certainly the the lawyer in Bartleby um we often think about him as somebody just retelling this tale but he's actually writing this story out it becomes a moment of possibility for him to try and explain the strange experience he has with this scrivener so it does become and i think this is melville's own experience paper becomes a source of affirmation or pleasure of possibility he doesn't stop writing no matter how badly he's rejected he never stops writing 
So he immediately picks up his pen and keeps writing. So pleasure, paper becomes a source of affirmation and pleasure of possibility for him. And I think that's played out in, in, in the stories. Mm. I don't know about you, but I'm very busy and I don't have a lot of time to cook. That's why I subscribe to Factor. Eating better is easy with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian-approved, and ready to go in just two minutes. You'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. These are two-minute meals. Factor meals are ready to eat in heat, so there's no prepping, cooking, or cleanup needed. They're flexible for your schedule. Get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Factor is the perfect solution if you're looking for fast premium options with no cooking required. Sign up and save. We've done the math, and this is important. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. Head to factormeals.com slash NBN50 and use code NBN50 to get 50% off. That's code NBN50 at factormeals.com slash nbn50 to get 50% off. So moving on to your second chapter, which deals with the the magazine industry during this period, um, could you just outline what the state of the industry was during the 1950s and also what genre conventions existed? So it's a very volatile period. I think that's the thing to emphasise. It's a period of great expansion. So, you know, in the there'd been earlier phases of uh, certainly of periodical expansion, certainly the new, newspapers in the eighteen thirties uh, and magazines too. But the eighteen fifties marks another kind of stage in this expansion of the of the magazine industry. Um, and what you what you find is that large publishers, publishers like Harper's and Putnam's, who um, Melville. Uh, as written for, start to enter the magazine market. So once those large publishers get involved, you can you, you know you do get a sense that this is a is a is an industry where not only is there money to be made, but there are opportunities for development. So you know the print cultural environment, the commercial print cultural environment, does kind of take off in the in the eighteen fifties, and magazines are. Um, um, are an important part of that. So there's lots of expansion. You get more specialization. So this is you know, one of the things that results from um, a growing market. You, that market starts to fragment in some ways and you get specialized audiences. Um, but it's also volatile in the, in the sense that lots of magazines start and then finish. Mm-hmm. So um, Putnam's one of the magazines that Melville writes for. It lasts for kind of five or six years, but but that's it. Unlike Harper's, which you know starts in, in eighteen fifteen, is still uh, it's still going today. So there is an incredible amount of volatility here. You get magazines popping up and disappearing, one or two issues in in some cases, you know, two or three years in other cases. So there's lots of kind of movement in the in in the market. Um, the forms that these magazines take are often kind of very miscellaneous. Um, in some ways, they don't know uh, what they're doing in the early stages of their development, so they try things out. So Harper's famously starts off as a magazine which really just reprints material from from Britain and Europe, and only gradually kind of discovers or, or realizes that actually there's actually a market for homegrown writers. So it starts to publish um, American writers as well and publishes original content, and, and Melville is part of that 
that process. Other magazines like Putnam's pride themselves on publishing only American uh, uh, writers. But again, the forms that this writing takes um, is, is, is miscellaneous. So you get sh- uh, what we would now call short stories, although people didn't really kind of consider them in those terms then, but you know, tales and sketches, essays are very important, reviews, um, illustration is starting to become very important. So certainly a magazine like Harper's prides itself on the quality of its illustrations. Putnam's couldn't really kind of keep up because it couldn't afford to to illustrate in that way. So magazines are starting to become part of America's visual culture as well mm. in, the, in the 1850s. And that visual dimension starts to change what magazines can do. And it changes the relationship between the written content and uh, the visual content as well. Many, much of the material, certainly in, in Putnam's, is published anonymously, so people don't even know they're reading Melville. Um, uh, during this during this time, and the same would apply to other to other writers as well. So, in terms of uh, genre, it's a very, kind of very mixed environment. There are lots of different kind of forms competing with one another, um, and even within um, what we would now call a short story, there are lots of kinds of generic variety. So, lots of sentimental uh, fiction, which kind of ties in with the uh, um, the book publishing industry in the eighteen fifties. But I guess the thing to say, and, and w- what's important for Melville, is that the, an expanding market allows um, people to um, not fly under the radar so much, but to kind of write in different kinds of ways because the market's not fixed and people are still trying to work out what sells and what's, what's viable. It means that they publish lots of different kinds of, of writing. Um, and of course, they've got to fill the magazine every week or every month. So there's just there are many more possibilities for writers in the 1850s, and genres aren't particularly fixed, I don't think. So it allows writers to move across and between genres to merge genres. And I think you know this is something that Melville's very good at. He's aware of how genre works in, in, in magazines. He was a magazine reader himself, and so was his family. So he understands the conventions that are starting to kind of develop in the in the 1850s. But I think he also sees the possibilities um, in trying to cross or bring genres together. So Bartleby would be a very good example of, of this. You know, it's a it's the it's an example of a story which is about 1850s clerks in New York. It was a quite a familiar genre. After all, many of the clerks would be reading these magazines and they wanted to read about people like themselves. So, you know, you can find other examples of stories about clerks in the 1850s, certainly in that urban environment. And that's what Bartleby does. That's what the story is about. But it's about something else as well. You know, there are lots of other things going on in that story. And so it brings in the genre of the city mystery, which is uh, popular in the, in the 1850s. It brings in that kind of psychological exploration that you know, we'd started to see in, in, in Poe's writing, for instance. So there are, there are lots of kind of opportunities to, to develop the short story um, in different kind of generic directions. And I think this is what, what Melville's trying to do in the, in the 1850s and why his writing is, I think, distinctive and, and significant. So it's a very mixed landscape, a volatile industry, an expanding market, with lots of kinds of possibilities and openings for writers to kind of do different kinds of things and to experiment and to, to, 
to explore um, imaginative possibilities in the in the realms of magazine writing, whether that's in terms of essays or uh, reviews or, or or in terms of uh, fiction. Mm. So, slightly broader question, which is, what motivated Melville to write for magazines? Uh, given that he would be anonymous and he wouldn't get the credit that he would if he wrote a novel, for instance. Well, that's a very the answer. That's very simple in one way, and 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 the answer is mm-hmm. money. Um, so he he wrote for money. Um, the failure of his um, of his novels after really the kind of first couple after Taipei and Omu really meant that he 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 didn't he couldn't sustain himself um, as a as a writer by writing novels. Um, he relied upon his fa- his wife's income, uh, family income, uh, to keep to keep his family uh, to support his family, and magazine writing actually paid very well in the eighteen in the eighteen fifties. So certainly, you know, the big magazines like Harper's and, and Putnam's um, had uh, quality thresholds. They wanted to to publish quality material, and they were prepared to pay for it. Um, so the initial motivation. Um, was a was a, was a was a financial one, um, and in some ways, you know, anonymity gave a writer protection. So you could actually uh, uh, get away with writing uh, what you wanted to write, and perhaps things which were more commercially uh, viable than perhaps you might want to put in a novel where your name would be emblazoned on the on on the cover. Um, and I think again, going back to that issue of genre, um, if you look at the material that um, Melville wrote for Harper's, it was certainly kind of perhaps more um, amenable to a popular market than the material that he wrote for Putnam's, which had a, which was aimed at a different kind of market. So he was able to kind of move between these different markets and make money from both of them. Um, it didn't always work. You know, some of his material was, was rejected. And he did only write for magazines for a short period of time, you know, for, for three or four years. Um, so primary motivation was uh, was was financial but i guess there is a literary motivation here that we need to think about as well melville was the kind of writer who wouldn't he wasn't content just with churning things out for money he was also he never lost that kind of ambition uh, to write what he wanted to write you know um, so that ambition that literary ambition that you see in his transition from something like type a travel narrative to you know a very uh, ambitious novel like like moby dick is a he t- he takes that with him. He takes that experience with him into the world of of magazine stories. So that's why we see quite ambitious magazine stories in things like Benito Serino and the Encantadas, kind of odd uh, experimental uh, kinds of of writing in some ways uh, that he knew he could kind of uh, get paid for as well, but uh, which um, uh, which he also saw as opportunities to kind of carry on his literary ambitions. And I think you know, this comes back to a larger kind of point about how his how his career develops, and why he moves through different uh, kinds of phases. I guess in his writing, from popular novels to ambitious novels, to magazine writing, and then to poetry um, in his in his later life. This magazine moment, this period, is just kind of one moment in his career when he wants to explore um, literary possibility as well as uh, writing writing for money. So 
the reason that he wrote for magazines was financial, but it was also a kind of different avenue, a different environment in which he could explore um, his literary ambitions. Mm. So flipping that question around uh, slightly, how did magazine editors uh, respond to Melville's work and what literary and aesthetic judgments did they bring to it? Um, I think in general... Um, the magazine environment, the editing environment of the 1850s was quite conservative. And I mean, I think we overestimate how quickly literary tastes and traditions change um, often. Um, they, tend to, they tend to change much more slowly. And the sorts of people who were editing uh, magazines in the 1850s had quite conservative literary um, tastes and their aesthetic judgments were, were relatively conservative as well. I mean, they were, they were, there was an awful lot of distinction going on here. So editors understood the difference between popular material and what they, what they considered to be artful material, which were perhaps based on um, what we would now think are quite um, outdated um, criteria, um, quite traditional criteria. But you know, one of the oddities, I think, is to, is to put Melville against some of these characters. So, uh, and magazines themselves did this. So there's a famous instance in, in Putnam's, the very first, um, uh, may have been the second uh, edition of, of Putnam's magazine. There's an essay in there about um, Melville and another writer called uh, George William Curtis. And it basically is a, is a comparative study of their work. And Curtis is one of the editors, becomes one of the editors at Putnam's who... Um, assesses and judges uh, Melville's writing. Now, looking back from our moment, they seem just incredibly different kinds of characters and their writing careers and the writing they produce is incredibly, I think to our eyes, incredibly different. But people in the 1850s considered them uh, to be, uh, to share a kind of uh, tradition in, in some ways. So I think that's the kind of environment in which in which Melville's writing, the kind of judgments that people were bringing to bear, they they, they look very odd to us now. I think, um, but I think what that allows is um, Melville um, to uh, to to be both popular and conformist in some ways, and to write in genres that people recognise, but also at the same time. I think, you know, as I said before, to kind of test out his literary ambitions. So whilst to writers at the time or editors at the time, his work you know, looked familiar, looked like other things they were publishing in, uh, in their magazines um, and quite uh, conservative uh, sorts of things in, in many ways. Um, I think we can see now with the benefit of hindsight that Melville was also kind of trying to push the boundaries a little bit and to explore his, his literary kind of imagination in, in new directions. So in general, you know, magazines were, were relatively conservative. And this, I think, accounts for, you know, we can see those moments where his stories are rejected, for instance, the two temples. So Putnam's rejects the two temples on the grounds that it might offend um, uh, some uh, particular person in, in New York. Um, on um, And the story, I think, is quite explicit in referring to this um, uh, uh, this character, um, a minister, religious minister. And so they're, Putnam's is afraid of that, so they won't publish. So there are those kinds of local concerns. There's another story of Melville's that, that Curtis, uh, the bell tower that Curtis um, 
has mixed feelings about. He rejects it initially because it doesn't do what he thinks uh, a good story should do for Putnam's, and then he ch- then he changes his mind the kind of next day, and he starts to see qualities in it that he uh, he, he, he kind of recognises, and then uh, and, and then so so chooses to so, so chooses to publish the story. So it's a kind of it's a it's a kind of odd environment, you know. The other thing to consider is that, of course, editors have got to fill an issue of their magazine. They've got to find the content because if they don't find the content, they've got to write it themselves effectively, which is what a lot of editors, which a lot of what a lot of editors did when they when they had a gap. So you know that affects your judgment. Um, it's not entirely a kind of literary or an aesthetic judgment. There are kind of practical mm-hmm. considerations here. Have we got enough material to fill the next issue? And the other consideration for editors is that they're dealing with lots of authors in each issue of a magazine. It's not like a novel where you may have a particular relationship with a with a with an editor or a publisher. Um, you know, editors of magazines are dealing with dozens, uh, perhaps even hundreds of authors at a time. So you don't have that kind of one to one relationship. Um, you send material in. This is what Melville did. He just sent material into these magazines, and you have to, you know, um, wait for their judgment. They say yes or no. Mostly, th- they said yes to Melville, but I don't think it's always a case of them loving the stories that he wrote. It's a it's a case of them thinking, okay, yeah, these stories are okay, they're fine. There may be particular things about them we don't like, but actually, even the next issue or the issue after that, we've got a gap we need to fill. We can afford to do it. The story's not too long. We can all serialize it if we need to. You know, those kinds of practical considerations are just as important, I think, as the uh, as the aesthetic um, judgments that are passed on Melville's mm. stories. So moving on to your fourth chapter, how does reading these magazines in their entirety change our understanding of Melville's writing? Um, I think one of the things you realise when you start to read even the individual issues in which Melville's stories were published is the sheer volume of material um, that was being produced in the, just in, in, in the 1850s. Um, this is, is becoming a, a mass industry. So there's just an awful lot of, of, of material. Um, now, what that does is to make Melville's um, stories pieces of ephemera in many ways. You know, they don't stand out in terms of, and even for, for, for magazine writers at the time, Melville wrote relatively little. You know, he only wrote a very few number of, uh, few number of stories um, amongst this kind of mass of, of material. And so it's very easy for an individual item in, a, in, in a, just in one issue to, you know, to disappear in many ways or to not be significant. Um, so I think you know reading the, the the magazines themselves in which these stories appear gives you a sense of the broader kind of literary and cultural context in which Melville is just kind of one I, I guess uh, speck uh, in. Um, I, I think you also get a better sense of the cultural preoccupations of of the magazines. So you see the kinds of materials or the other books that they're reviewing, for instance. Um, you get a sense of what other fiction people are writing. You get a sense of how a magazine prioritizes its material. So where do the stories appear? Do they become 
at the beginning? Are they the most important thing in the in the magazine? Are they illustrated? You know, sorts of all sorts of questions like that. The, the kind of paratextual uh, environment, I guess, in which they uh, exist. But I think one of the other key things that you get from from reading uh, the magazines themselves is you get a sense in in which Melville is connected um, and has similar interests to other writers who are writing in magazines at the time. So you see crossovers between the material that he's writing about, whether it's race in Benito Serino or Clark's in Bartleby the Scrivener and other material, other um, which may not be in the, in, in written in, in, in fiction, but maybe you know, the subject of an essay and a review. Melville's a part of a, is connected to this other material. His stories are connected to the, to this other material as well. And you can start to make links and start to see how Melville kind of fits in or diverges from other kinds of opinions that are being expressed um, in these magazines. Mm. So your fifth chapter deals with the topic of literary pilfering and Melville famously relied on other literary sources. Um, How does his magazine writing change our understanding of this practice? And what does this tell us about magazine writing more generally in the 1850s? Well, I mean, a a short answer to that would be, uh, I don't know, um, because um, I'm not sure how common this practice was. So it was clearly important to to Melville, so Bartleby the Scrivener, for instance, we know is it shares similarities with a with a with a with a story that was published in in, a, in another uh, periodical in the 1850s. So it begins in pretty much exactly the same way. We're introduced to this kind of Scrivener in that other story. And Melville kind of obviously copies this. He then writes a very different kind of story. Uh, Benito Serino is a, a, a version of um, events written um, in a non-fiction way by a, by a former sea captain, and um, Israel Potter. The same is based upon another based upon another book that was published uh, much earlier. Now, Melville shows himself to be a great editor. He edits these stories effectively and rewrites these stories. But I'm not sure how common that is. And this goes back to the question about. Um, uh, magazines more generally in the in the 1850s the sheer volume of material means that it's actually very difficult i imagine to track down uh uh, the the nature Mm. of this practice certainly with our current methods of close reading and author based studies you know without very clear clues from the writers themselves about um or from kind of that kind of literary archaeology and digging up these kinds of connections it's difficult to know how how common this practice was and it may be that we in future years we come to know um uh, much more about the prevalence of this activities and this kind of rewriting process i mean it may be that different kinds of methods quantitative methods in literary analysis might help us to um to dig up other examples of where this where this works and certainly you know, we know a lot about reprinting and how uh, material is reprinted in periodicals in the 1850s. And sometimes it's changed um, or altered, in, but not in particularly significant ways. You know, Melbourne clearly rewrites entirely these, these, earlier, these earlier stories. So I don't know um, how prevalent uh, it was. I don't know what, really what it tells us about magazines in the 1850s. It's not always clear to me precisely whether the magazines who were publishing these stories were even aware 
that they were based upon um, uh, previous narratives. I mean, I'm not, I'm, it's not entirely clear to me whether people would have been aware that Benito Serino was based upon um, um, the recollections of a, a, of a former sea captain. I mean, I, you know, this, the, 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 the nonfiction that it was based on, the book that it was based on, was published you know, over 30 years before Melville wrote this story. So those, those kinds of questions we don't know. And it may be that they just thought this was an original story and, and, and not, a, not a kind of uh, pilfered story. But I guess the, you know the larger point is that um, literary pilfering, as I call it, or, or, or literary borrowing. You know, we know we, we know about we know that 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 takes place, and the questions about issues of plagiarism are quite a, a hot topic in you know in other kind of literary traditions, certainly kind of the Romantics in in in, in Britain, and this idea of, of 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 what an author was. You know, should an author be somebody who just invented from nothing. Um, that's a, a, an idea of authorship that only develops, I think, in the 19th century. So, you know, th- there are those broader questions about literary borrowing. But as to magazines themselves, it may be that lots of writers were pilfering other stories and rewriting them for magazines, but that we just, we just as yet, uh, don't know about them. Um, you know, there are opportunities to try and kind of um, to follow up there and do, do further study on that. Sounds like a question that uh, some future digital humanities technique might help with. Um, mm. So uh, just a final kind of broader question, which is what are the implications of your work for how scholars conceptualise Melville's career as a whole? And I'm thinking in particular about the issue of why he fell into obscurity. Yes, I mean... I mean, the question of obscurity uh, is, a, is, a, is a good one to think about. So there is a, you know, a familiar narrative about Melville, <clears throat> which is that his career is an inverted climax, uh, as I think somebody referred to it. So he starts off with a bang, you know, with Taipei, which is um, very uh, uh, successful. And then gradually his career a career uh, declines and certainly you know with those large difficult novels like Mardi and then with with Moby Dick and Pierre and the Confidence Man um magazines are a moment actually which you know are, d- are difficult to fit into that narrative because it could be that actually many more people were reading his work at that moment um than had ever read his work i mean Harper's had a circulation of of of, of 200,000 people so those stories that he wrote for Harper's could have been read by Many more people than wrote his than wrote his novels, but I think yes, in general, that's how we think about Melville's career. But of course, the thing we have to consider is that literary fame um, was a very different beast in the in the in the nineteenth century. Certainly in America, there were very few writers who uh, were continuously successful or popular. Writing was a career which was very hit and miss. It's very difficult to sustain oneself through writing and therefore to have a, con- a continuous writing career. Many writers were successful for a moment and then stopped writing or did something else. And I think that's a better way in which to think about Melville. You know, he wasn't always a writer. Um, it's, not all, it's not evident that he always had ambitions to be a writer. He becomes a writer at a certain moment in his life. Um, in the 1840s and in the 1850s, and he explores various kinds of ways of writing, novels, uh, and then magazine writing, and then really stops being a writer, certainly being a published writer, turns to poetry, 
um, becomes a customs official, um, and then you know lives out his life. So obscurity is the right word in some ways. His literary fame fades, but I'm not sure obscurity is the right word in another way because it kind of misconceives, I think, what writing is and was and what authorship was in the in the 19th century and certainly in the 1840s and 50s. So he's just somebody who writes for a while and then does something else. I think that's a better way to think about his 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 career, but also to think about his literary career as as one in which he kind of explores different forms of writing. So you see him start off as a kind of really not a novelist so much as a travel writer and that's how Taipei is sold as a as a travel narrative. We you know we think about it now as a novel because we know it's fiction. And he writes and he develops the novel form through through Moby Dick. Then he turns to to writing magazine stories, short stories, then stops writing those and starts becoming interested in writing poetry. So that's a better way, I think, to think about Melville's uh, career, that he just writes different things at different points in his life. Um, and maybe, and I think that is something that people have started to, to think about. So they pay much more attention now to the, to the poetry that he wrote and to the, the things that he wrote, certainly like Billy Budd at the, uh, towards the end of his life and his, and his writing career. So I don't think, you know, Melville was never really a kind of professional writer. Um, and he was never um, really um, uh, a jobbing writer. He wrote at certain moments in certain ways and did other things and um, survived through all the means, certainly with the help of his, uh, his wife's family money. Mm. So in many respects, the uh, idea of obscurity imposes on his life uh, our ideas of how writers should behave. Yeah, and I think we, I think, you know, almost inevitably, uh, we think about writers uh, from a kind of contemporary perspective. We think about what it is to be a writer today, and we certainly are a little bit obsessed, perhaps, with the rewards that writing and popular writing can bring. So we think about, um, you know, those very successful writers of the 20th century and 21st century who do sustain a career um, through writing. But even now, I mean, even today, you know, if you look at those reports that the the Writers Guild in the in the US published, for instance, you know, most people who write don't make money from writing. There are lots of different ways to write and to publish now, certainly with kind of digital opportunities, but you know, writing and making money and having a career have always and continue to be um, quite precarious, I think. Um, so I don't think we should think too much about uh, writing in terms of a financial uh, career or uh, sustaining one's financial life. Um, writing is much more about a kind of imaginative process that people pick up and put down as they go through their lives. Mm. Great. Well, thank you for being on the programme today, Graham. That was a fascinating conversation. Uh, I just have one final question for you, which is what are you working on now? Um, so now, I, I, I guess this, and this follows on from uh, from the work on Melville, is to think more about magazines, but to think more about um, that general 19th century context of how magazines were made and how literature was made. And, and, and what I mean by made is literally made. So how did... Um, how were 
how was literature more generally, and this could include magazines, but books, pamphlets, poetry, all sorts of things. How was it made? Um, what processes had to be in place uh, for that material to actually reach its audience? So the project more generally is called Making American Literature, and it really kind of asks three key questions. You know, how was literature made in the 19th century? How was it? Uh, where, where did the paper come from? How was it? How was it produced? How did printing work? All those kinds of questions about the physical infrastructure. You know, what sorts of things did people read uh, in the 19th century apart from books and magazines, all that other, all those other kinds of material? And how did this material reach its readers? I mean, I think that's a question we need to know more about. How was it circulated and distributed? Um, where did you buy th- buy a novel in the 19th century? You know, we know how to do it today, but what's the history of the bookstore, for instance, in the in the 19th century? So there's, I mean, so the project more generally is about those kinds of uh, uh, questions about the infrastructure in which uh, literature was was produced and uh, distributed, even before it, you know, that I'm so what I'm interested in is that moment before it gets read, if you like. I'm interested in that pre-reading stage. Mm, well, that sounds uh, absolutely fascinating, and I very much look forward to reading the results of that research. Thanks again for being on the program today, Graham. Thanks, Steve. Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere playing at luckylandslots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18+. Plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.